All right. Uh, we have a little card that we've been using this year, and you can find this in the, in the foyer. It actually guides us through our sermon series as we go through. So we've been doing different uh, series as we go through 2013, and right now we're in a short series on the Trinity. And in October, uh, we will start a series on the Messianic Psalms. And so you'll see those listed here. And so just to let you know, there is a little bit of a plan going on here in case you're wondering, how, how do, where do we come up with these ideas and where, where can I find them? So I encourage you to, uh, to follow along. So today we start a series on the Trinity, the Trinity. Uh, the Father is today, the Son will be next week, and Joel Cook will be preaching next week. And uh, that's going to be exciting. And then we'll have Nathaniel uh, follow up with the Spirit. And uh, so uh, that's, that's going to be good. Well, let me tell you a little bit about something I experienced on my little mini sabbatical. Um, I had a chance to see my mother, uh, who lives in Paradise, California. You think you live in Paradise? But she really does live in Paradise. And that's near Chico, and uh, it was a delight to be with her. And then I had a chance to be with Marianne's mom and spend some time with her. And there I was doing a project. There I was painting part of her house. The trim on her house needed help. And so uh, son-in-law comes in and, and helps out. And then uh, our daughter Aubrey uh, was off to college, so I had a chance to fly with her her last year in college. So we flew to Atlanta and we drove up to Chattanooga, and then Covenant College. But when I was at my mother-in-law's house, uh, I did a couple of runs because I was painting. I went down to Home Depot. And um, on a one trip to Home Depot to get some stuff, um, I'm driving uh, along. And this is the Bay Area. This is the Silicon Valley. Um, so uh, there's not a lot of rusting cars. Let's just put it that way. Uh, you pull into Safeway, there's uh, really, really fancy cars uh, in there. So I'm driving along, and uh, next to me drives this silver car. And uh, I look for a moment, and uh, oh, that's amazing. I think, what kind of car is that? And I remember the logo in the back real quickly, and I realized what it was. It was a convertible Bentley. A convertible Bentley. Uh, silver-haired guy, whew, just dry. I mean, it didn't even feel like the engine was on. I just, and uh, I was driving a 1994 Honda Accord, um, where to open the door, the driver's passenger door, the, the lock doesn't work anymore, so you have to keep the window down to reach over and open it up. Bentley and a Honda. But for a moment, I was ahead of this Bentley, just to let you know, just for a moment. Just for a moment. And then there was a moment when I was right with him, and there was a moment when he was gone. Now, what happened in my heart at that time was not envy. Um, what actually happened in my heart was a kind of joy for him. Actually true. And as he drove and uh, quickly got out of my sight... I thought about the Bay Area and how many things I've seen over the years in the San Francisco Bay Area. For instance, I was there when this little upstart garage-started company called Apple. I remember those little computers were being sold in these little tiny stores. 
And only people in the Bay Area were buying them. They were, they were the only ones who really knew about them at that time. I remember those days. Um, I remember those were the early 80s. I remember the days when the San Francisco area would just shut down uh, in the 90s uh, and part of the 80s uh, because the San Francisco 49ers were, were an incredible team for several years. And uh, you could play bingo on, on freeways uh, because no one, no one was around. Every, everyone, even people who didn't like football, were, were watching uh, Joe Montana and company uh, head to yet another Super Bowl. I saw that trend. And as that guy passed me in the Bentley, I thought for a moment, huh, this really might be a billionaire, I don't know. Uh, I thought for a moment, he has his moment. This is his moment. And, and I wished him well. But there were moments in the 80s when people had their moments. They shined and they, they were on the top of the world. Um, and there were times in the 90s and the early 2000s, and now it's, it's 2013. And in other words, I began to observe. I'm a, I like to observe whole cities, cultural trends. And we're living for moments. It's all we really have. As I went into San Francisco with our daughter Aubrey and we went out for brunch, I walked around the city and there were neat things, beautiful things, architectural marvels, amazing things, but there's also decay, darkness, hard things, sorrow. And it wasn't until we actually, on one trip, we, we went in and, and we went to a, a place that's actually called the Catholic Center. Uh, it doesn't have a great sound of a cathedral, but it's an incredible cathedral. Some of you may have seen this. Uh, it's it's uh, near the, the Japanese Center in San Francisco, and it's sort of, it's an amazing structure. It sort of looks like a Maytag agitator inside your washing machine. Sorry, that's the, it really does. But it's an amazing building. It's 16 stories high inside. And the stained glass goes all the way up. And it's extraordinary. Right in the middle of the city, this amazing, amazing cathedral. And it was inside this cathedral, looking out through the windows onto this gray city, that my heart was lifted up. That it wasn't just that we live for our moments. It was that Someone has spoken. Someone has intersected with this world. And I know him. And I am connected to him. And I'm part of an amazing story. And the sadness that I see through the window there is not the final story. It is not the only story. And I am delivered from just living for moments. Someone has made me attentive to their love. Someone has brought me to a place where I can understand a love that has come from eternity past. I have a father. If you're a Christian here today, you have a father. You have a father. Father hunger is an extraordinary thing in our day and time. You have a father. And in this passage, I have a a few key words that you might think are a little bit different 
Um, they're not so much doctrinal words, but they're words I hope connect with you. I think we have a father in this passage, a father for our burden, a father for our fullness, and a father for our dignity, a father for our burden. Blessed be the God and Father. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The original audience here was intimidated by the gods of Rome, the gods that were telling them that Rome had been ordained to rule over them, that the realm of the heavens was filled with dark spirits and spiritual forces, and they better obey and just get along with this tyrant called Rome. And Paul has instructed the Ephesians, and now he has put into writing the gospel, and he is writing not just about some generic creator, He's writing about the revelation that God is three and yet one. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune being. And you have been brought into fellowship with this God. In fact, there are two prayers here in Ephesians 1. And the first one is a, uh, a benediction, a benedictory prayer. It is a prayer of just blessing. I hope you're blessed, and I hope you know how well you're blessed. And then the second prayer is really, I know, I want you to know how much I've been praying for you. It's more like a a prayer that includes Paul's report later on. How blessed you are. How blessed you are. I have been reading uh, over this past uh, five, six weeks uh, a book called Modern Times, Modern places. I have no idea how this even got on one of my shelves downstairs, but I have it. And I took it on uh, my time away. <laughs> um, I have to say that the first 200 pages I didn't even understand. Uh, this guy has, he is writing to uh, PhD people, and he has no mercy on his audience. No mercy. Uh, and I read it slowly. He uses, he uses words um, I've never seen before. Come up. I'll, I'll show them to you. I, I had a dictionary with me. His ability to use words was extraordinary. His grasp of words, I should say. But I want to tell you something about a strange, uh, well, a, a very unique time in world history. That history book covers European history from 1890 to 1930. Now, stay with me. I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. That was a period of time when affluent civilizations had been living with the idea that God, if he exists, had abandoned had abandoned mankind. They'd been living with this idea for some time. And the cultural uh, influencers, Einstein, Picasso, Freud, all essentially embraced this idea. People in the arts, 
in theater, the kinds of literature that was being written. Essentially, we are affluent societies, affluent cultures, but this might be the end. There was no hope. And major capitals like Berlin, Vienna, Paris, London, throw in Moscow. There, had, there was no revelation, no divine supernatural encounter with God. And they believed this. There had, God had not spoken. They took this seriously. And it was described as the terror of history, in which one is left to make up the meaning of one's own life for yourself. Now, have you ever seen that famous picture uh, called The Scream? With that sort of strange half-person who's grabbing, his, grabbing their face? Uh, how many? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. All right, all right. Okay. Eight? 1893. 1893. Uh, the authors, uh, the uh, the artist's name is Edward Munch, M-U-N-C-H, and by the way, that's the uh, most expensive painting ever uh, auctioned. Uh, 120 million. There were four of them, but the one particular one, four of them, 120 million dollars in 2012. Uh, Stay with me a bit. Let's go with this for a bit. The artist of The Scream writes a short poem, I think it's in Norwegian, uh, about his experience of painting The Scream. And here it is. I was walking along the road with two friends. The sun was setting, and suddenly the sky turned blood red. I paused, feeling exhausted. And I leaned on the fence. And there was blood and tongues of fire above the, the blue-black fjord and the city. And my friends walked on, and I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. You see, without divine revelation, without father love, you're faced now with just nature. And nature is brutal. Nietzsche, if you ever come across him, he's the one who comes along and says, give up all your, give up all this superstitious, these things that inhibit you. Don't be afraid of your nature. Nietzsche, let it out, right? So, this gentleman who paints the scream is trembling with anxiety. No longer is the earth a visited planet. No longer is... God tending to this creation, it is just raw, brutal, and dangerous nature. An infinite scream passing through. So, what were the implications of this? Well, a civilization was in decline. Some turned to the cabaret for a momentary distraction with pleasure. Influential influential thinkers and, and leaders took advantage of this time and took advantage of this despair and came with whole new revolutions. We think of the Bolshevik Revolution. A whole new way of thinking about time. Books, and particularly in Nazi Germany, they were books that had another view of history, were burned. A whole, some took advantage of those who had lost their way in life. In fact, some embraced death and their demise as inevitable. 
Strange things were underway. For instance, in Berlin, there were nightclubs that had apocalyptic motifs. It was like going into Dante's Inferno. What a great place to hang out, huh? Strange. Embracing death. Now, this awful prospect of facing a world that's ruled, ruled by nature where God has not spoken is terrifying. There is no one who has conquered this world and all its woes. Think about that. Ephesians 1.22, what a different world. The Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ and has given him to rule over all things and to rule over his church and to rule over his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And to turn away from revelation means to become diminished. If you don't have the Father's love in you, you are fading away. You are fading out. You are going to to, to disintegrate. And along with you will go your whole society. This is a weighty love. It anchors you. It allows you to look out upon a, a great city like San Francisco and not fall into despair but to say that God loves the city and he moves toward the city with his weighty, redemptive, fatherly love. See, we have a father for our burden. And what has he done? He has blessed us in Christ. That means that the totality of our salvation has been focused upon Christ. The father made sure the events of his son were redemptive, that his son was was born, his, his son lived the life that he lived, his son went to the cross. This was the design of the Father. When you think of the Trinity, the Father is the planner. The Father is the designer. The Son is the one who says, Father, I'll do your plan, and I'll accomplish it. And the Spirit is the one who applies the plan. The Spirit is the one who brings the redemption to bear upon our hearts. Now, Some of us, when you think about a father for your burden, um, you're really only going to get this unless you really sense, wow, I need this father love. This This needs to be big for me. But some of us here today, you may think of that and say, well, that's really for, that's for needy people. I don't know, that's a nice idea and the Bible says it, but, you know, my life has ups and downs and I have burdens, but you know what? Um, I handle them pretty well. Um, I don't know. I had the burden of getting through college. Check. I had the burden of finding someone to go through life with. Check. I had the burden of figuring out where my life or my career is going, and wow, I ended up in Hawaii. Check. (laughs) In other words, when you think about your burdens, I don't know. You're managing your life pretty well. Do you need Ephesians 1, 3? Really? I would uh, propose that if you have sort of a kind of a casual view of this, I realize I'm, we're just, I'm just hitting you with this right, right kind of shocking, oh, it's coming at me fast. But if you just sort of have a casual view of the Father's love, kind of this fatherly care, I don't think you're very spiritually discerning. I think you're tapped into your soul's great need. 
You see, your core competencies are sustaining you. Yeah. Yep, they're working for you. And it's a nice time in church. Um, but really, what's working for you is, is your ability and your skills. You see, you're able to feel okay enough about your life. If you're a Christian and you're thinking this way, you're asleep. And uh, you see, (laughs) the Apostle Paul couldn't wait to tell the Ephesians how blessed they were. And that this was the most important thing that would ever enter their minds, that God had secured for them their eternal salvation. And he doesn't promise them deliverance from Rome. And this is a big, big deal, the Father's love. There's another kind of person here today who's not asleep. They're awake. And they're awake to, to this thought that this news is, is just not for me. You're overcome by shame. You're overcome by self-condemnation. There could be no such father for me. And I hope you will not leave today without being convinced that there is such a father for you. You are not left on a bridge staring out at a, a bloody sunset all by yourself with the terror of, of a world where God has not spoken. That is not the world that is. And it comes through the Father's love has been ordained to come through the proclamation, to pierce through this scream that we may hear in nature, but it, it can be overcome. The Father's voice is more powerful than the threats that we may sense from our condition. So, there's a Father for our burden. And the burden is what? The burden is I need to hear from him. I can't be left to make meaning on my own. I can't be left to just manufacture a few moments that are thrilling, a few moments that are personally meaningful, but in the big picture, I'm connected to nothing else. Oh, what, what an amazing thing for, for, my, for, for me to fly and look through the window down upon a, an area like the, the Bay Area in San Francisco or Honolulu and look upon this or, and to see, to see these, these massive people centers and to know the Father's love for me, to not be caught up in the alienation of this modern time or postmodern time, but to look through these and experience these depersonalizing forces and to know that I have been loved as a person. Do, do, you, do, do you walk like that? Do you think like that? Oh, may we be a church that is filled with father love, a father love for our burden. And then secondly, a father for our fullness. I purposely chose a, an unusual word here to kind of throw you off a bit. I confess that. But um, a father for our fullness. W- would you look at... Look at verse 3 and 4 again with me. Uh, he, he blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is not just talking about moral conformity. I want to suggest to you that it's not just talking about law-keeping, which certainly that's what it does look like to grow in, 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 Christian, in Christian maturity. I'm going to suggest to you that the fullness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, their relationship with each other is a full relationship. And, you can, and it's described in Ephesians as the fullness of God becoming our experience. So to grow in holiness is to grow in God-likeness. And what does it mean to be like God? It means to be filled, infinitely happy, filled, abundant, buoyant. Uh, Nothing drags you down. Nothing overwhelms you. See? It's a fullness. Have you ever sensed this fullness? Sort of speaking subjectively here. It's a fullness. It's a fullness. It's a... It's a fullness that comes because you're sensing and understanding something that you can almost not put into words. In fact, numerous times in the Bible, it is described as beyond knowledge. Isn't that great? In the book of Ephesians, you have glorious truth stacked upon glorious truth stacked upon glorious truth. And often it's it's sort of the same idea just explained this way and that way. It's like a kaleidoscope moving different directions. A father for our fullness. In fact, on page uh, uh, 1100 in your your Bible right near you, page 1100, it actually says this key phrase, the fullness of God. And look, look at verse 18, Ephesians 3.18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I would suggest to you, is God full of holiness? The answer is yes. It's his essential being. And now we made in the image of God. God is pursuing us that we would be filled to this fullness, the fullness of God. That's hard to explain, isn't it? It's sort of hard. What's he, what's, what's he talking about? Well, it's something that we simply come to experience through this father love. This father love we are to dwell upon and to feel the rush of the father's love that nothing drew us to him. We could not distinguish ourselves from other people. We couldn't merit his love, but he, his love is for our flourishing, and he wants us to be blameless, and he has done this through his son. He wants us to be rid of our shame, and he has done this through his son, and it's indescribable. It is a knowledge that surpass, a love that surpasses knowledge, to quote Ephesians 3.19. So something happens, and here's, this, here's, here's the application. Something happens when you dwell on your salvation. Something ha- you, you can't do it. Uh, <laughs> you just can't, you can't do it. You can't resist it. You dwell on your salvation. You're back and forth. This week, this week, spend some time in Ephesians 1. Back and forth. Take notes. Keep dwelling on it. Reflect on it. Think about it. Guess what's going to happen? 
something's going to happen in you and it's going to feel like fullness. It's going to feel like a buoyant happiness. Christ is formed in you. The very love that was manifested by Jesus Christ for his Father, Jesus was full of love for his Father, that same love now you will have for the Father as well. There's a book called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. Author's name is Fred Sanders, and he writes this, God, the Trinity, is the end, the goal, the telos, the omega. In himself, without any reference to the created world or the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit, the boundless life that God lives in himself at home in the happy land of the Trinity above all worlds, and it is perfect, it is complete, inexhaustibly full, and infinitely blessed. You're being invited into the happy land of the Trinity. It's a buoyant, full place. Dwell on it. And dwell on this predestinating love. It's not putting the Bible there to cause debates and, and, and uh, theological fights. It's there to tell us that the Father love has been at work before the world began. Father love, Father love is a planning love. And as George MacDonald wrote, who was such an influencer of Tolkien and Lewis, George MacDonald wrote, fatherhood is at the core of the universe. And we draw near to this holy fire of his love, and we are not burned, but we are comforted. Now, this fullness, one more, one more, one more pass at it. John the writer, John the gospel writer, he picks up on this idea of fullness. And he can't wait to tell, can't tell, wait to tell the world about it. I walked with Jesus. I was there with him. And here's what, we, here's what we saw. The Word became flesh, John 1.14. We're, we're familiar with it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's hard to get those two things together. Grace and truth, but in Christ they come together. And then look at verse 16. John 1.16, this is so beautiful. And from his, from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. As Jesus interacted with his disciples, as he interacted with his world, what did they experience? They experienced an intangible something that John describes as fullness. And you look upon the great cities of the world, and you will not sense this. You will sense this emptiness, this despair. The nightclubs descending into Dante's inferno. This shame and this guilt and this sense of there's no father love in the world. There's no place to go. All I have is these moments. And they are worth nothing. And it is into this world that the fullness of God now moves. The fullness of God manifests itself in the life of the church. The fullness of God now manifests itself in, in families and in our lives together. The fullness of God is what people encounter when they encounter the likes of you and me.
Is this too lofty? Is this too upper story? Is this too up there? I believe this has practical implications for our daily lives. Dwelling on the Father's love, his love that takes our burden, his love that brings us to fullness. And it's not just this private, personal, spiritual cul-de-sac. It is a fullness that moves into this world. It is not a fullness just for me or just for my children. These are moments and times when I would dwell on his great love such that his fullness would manifest itself in me. And then lastly, this is just so, so beautiful here, verses 4 and 6, the father for our dignity, a father for our dignity. In, in love, verse 4, he predestined us for adoption, woe, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Simply paraphrased, here it is. Here's my paraphrase of that, that, that verse. You know you've been loved, right? You, you know that you've been loved all the way to the status of a son. And you see, God didn't just bring you into his courtroom, and then he brought his, his son, Jesus Christ, and his son presented his righteousness for you, and so you who have no righteousness became justified You were given his righteousness, his obedience was credited to you, and your sin was credited to Jesus, and the Bible describes this as justification. Now, in the courtroom of God, you survived through Jesus Christ. That's not adoption. Uh, You could be dismissed from God's courtroom out a side door, And God doesn't communicate to you that he wants you around the table. He is still your judge, and you passed his his exam. Adoption is a whole different thing. Adoption is the courtroom being transformed into a living room. This doesn't mean God is no longer uh, transcendent and glorious and different than us but it means that he is willing to be a father to us in a very real, real way. And so he is now calling us to remember that we were adopted, not just tolerated. We were brought into the family, uh, not just made those who uh, escaped his judgment. You see, if we don't grasp that we have uh, been adopted by our Heavenly Father, we will likely still live in a kind of fear. We will still live out of motives to obey and to please. We're not quite sure about our Father's thoughts about us. You see, if you uh, were to adopt a child, and I realize that's the, the truth here in this room for many people, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is possible that an adopted child coming in for a natural-born child, the adopted child, say, coming in maybe at 9 or 10 years old, where they're conscious of themselves and aware of themselves, the adopted child around the table is going to be looking for signals that I'm really, 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 really part of this family. How do I look? Am I obeying? 
Am I acting like a family member? What do my parents think? How's it going? Now, the natural-born child at 10 years old isn't thinking this at all. Get your feet off the table. They're feeling perfectly comfortable. And they don't, they don't walk around the neighborhood wondering, what house do I really belong in? That's my house right there. And they walk in, they have confidence, right? We deal with disrespect, don't we, right? They're so confident, right? But you see, the adopted child is self-conscious. The adopted child is not sure. And they need signals from their parents. You mean I'm really, really, really part of this family? It's really, really true? So to believe that it's really, really true, you'll be, well, your fears will diminish. They may not go completely away. But you see, this is at the root of many of our insecurities. You see, if we're stuck without the Father's love, then we've got to sort of manufacture love and people's response. We're dependent on people to come through, to be a certain way. And now we live for people's approval You see, people who are hard-edged, defensive, it it reveals much more than they realize. I see this in myself. You see, when I was painting my mother-in-law's trim on her house, it was really interesting to be stuck with myself for a day. Really interesting. I wish I had someone else to blame, but I didn't. Just myself. And I I was really interested in in the impulses that I have for perfectionism. Like, I'm not a professional painter, but you know what I think? I think I should be one. (laughs) Is it that hard? And you know what? Uh, I ruined a nice pair of clothes, paint all over them. I'm not that good of a painter, but you know what I think? I think I am. I'm only as good as how that trim looks. I was on this rickety ladder, and I wanted to be surrounded with, like, professional paint equipment. I kept thinking about the kinds of things that a real professional would do. And all of this was just this crazy, made-up world in my mind. There's no one else there watching me. I'm not in training to be a professional painter. It's just this made-up world. I'm only as good as how that strip of paint looks. And I notice my emotions up and down and up and down. And and it's the ladder's fault or something. (laughs) Crazy, crazy. And what kind of equipment is this? Suddenly there's a craziness inside me. And so to, to rest... To rest in the Father's love is, it, it takes work. Now, sermons, you know, all right, sermons come and go, right? But, but to really enter into this, this takes work. But you know what Paul does here? He puts, the, he puts our dignity, he puts our dignity beyond what we do, beyond what we achieve in life. And he gives us this bedrock of God's love And he can't wait to tell people about it. And he's saying, listen, you're not what you think you are. You're much more than that, but it's what God has done for you. 
and you'll never, ever, ever, ever achieve. A moment that lasts. Again, the Bay Area, the trends, the cars, the moments, the buildings that have come and gone, the moments that were here and now they're gone. Does it terrify you? Are you aware that you are living just for a moment? Does it bother you? Does it make you sort of like realize that there is an internal something wrong inside where you just can't even paint and enjoy it? The moment has to be a certain way. And if it can't be this way, I'm going to freak out. And I get used to it. And everyone else around me gets used to it. Strange, isn't it? This beautiful, happy land of the Trinity. Relax. Shake off all your guilty fears. I think God wants us to be happier than we ever, ever could imagine. And the strangest thing is, we're just not sure. Well, we can do church. But we're really not even, we're not even that different than Berlin in the 1930s. We're not that different than Moscow and Bolshevik Revolution. We're not that different. Do we really believe God has spoken? Do we really believe the Father has chased us down with an everlasting love? Seriously. And I'm preaching to myself. Do we really live more like orphans? Or are we adopted? You see, when God becomes lovely, when he becomes better, when, he, when you can't deny your need for father love and you experience it, you begin to change. And the core area of change is adoration. Uh, this passage bothers me because he's just so happy in God. Meaning this, that the Apostle Paul is saying that if you get it, you will become adoring of the Father. It is glorious grace, verse 6, glorious grace. My heart, beginning to get it, means that the Father is glorious, relational, comforting, drawing me in, unashamed of me. It's the safest place in the world. It's better than a perfect trim of a house. It's better than a fancy car. It's better than anything else. Oh, Father, Change my stubborn heart to believe. Make me less, make me less convinced of pursuing these tiny little moments of my life as the significance of my life. What is the most significant is your love for me. Let's pray.